You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is not just another edition of Real Men Feel. This is a bit of an experiment. Um, if, if If anyone's ever hearing this or seeing this, then it was partially successful. September was National Suicide Prevention Month in the United States, and there was a National Suicide Prevention Day early in September, and so I was a a guest on a number of other podcasts talking about my experience with suicidal thoughts, attempts, and depression, and my wife was also a guest on One Broken Mom with Ami Kwerkoni, and I have not watched it. Um... I don't really want to watch it. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, it was, a few years ago, Lori and I both spoke together at, at a NAMI event. That's the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And we spoke together. And then I sat down and Lori spoke alone, talking about what it was like to, to live with someone who's suicidal. And it sucked. Um, I, I knew it wasn't pleasant to live with me. Um, but she shared things with the audience that she had never told me. So I learned stuff and it was, it was just really bizarre. And I learned a lot of uh, assumptions and mistakes I had made in the way I communicated in and the way I uh, assumed things affected her or didn't affect her. So it was really eye-opening, and it and it helped us uh, in the long run and, and in the short run. Right, away. we were talking about it just to, to drive home of of everything I had discovered from being in the audience and listening to her talk. So I don't know what they're talking about in, in the show, except that you know it's it's about living with someone that's suicidal. So far, I've just listened to the beginning, just to try to test this to see if it would work, um, and. Uh, yeah, just the very first image, I could feel the tension in my body. So I might uh, be giggling a lot. If you hear me just laughing, it's not because it's funny. It's because that's just my defense mechanism. Um, it's easier to do that and kind of laugh it off than to feel the pain of uh, what might be coming my way. I don't know if I'm going to pause it and stop and comment or wait till the end because, because again, I haven't heard this. Um, so if you want the unfettered <laughs> version of this you know go to one broken mom uh see, see there'll be links here in in the in the post and in links on uh, realmenfield.org about the show where to watch it and or listen to it fully intact but you know you can find one broken mom on every pod- podcast platform there's also an interview that i did that i listened to half of it and it was you know i know what i say <laughs> so that didn't trigger me much um that didn't trigger me at all it was just uh you know me but uh, this will be different. So if you're watching this, I'm going to keep my face up in, in the corner and you can see me uh, grimace or laugh along or uh, curl into a ball. I don't know what's going to happen. And uh, again, I'll probably, if I really want to say something, I'll probably pause the video and, and speak or I'll hold to the end. I, I don't know. So, you know, let's, let's go for it. All right. Here we are on the uh, One Broken Mom YouTube channel. 
and we're going to watch. Uh, so part one is an interview with me. Part two is an interview with my wife, Lori. Here we go. Yeah, you are a person who has experienced suicidal thoughts or you have attempted to end your life by suicide, this episode is not for you. The topic we discuss today can be extremely triggering for someone who is struggling with suicide ideation and could be completely misinterpreted. If you are a listener, again, who has attempted suicide in the past or experienced thoughts about killing yourself, please skip this episode. Go listen to part one with Andy instead, or simply join us next week. In the latest statistics from the National Institutes of Mental Health, in 2017, 10.6 million adults aged 18 or older reported having serious thoughts about trying to kill themselves, and 1.4 million adults made a non-fatal suicide attempt during that past year. For every one of those adults, and even children, it is safe to say that there is at least one other person trying to support them. But you can easily imagine that that number is actually much higher, right? We're talking about moms, dads, brothers, sisters, friends, co-workers, romantic partners, husbands, and wives. There is no question that understanding why a person wants to end their own life is vital to preventing death by suicide. However, suicide is a taboo topic in our society. And let's consider for a moment that one of the reasons is not just that there's a concern that talking about suicide gives suicidal people the wrong ideas about the benefit to die at their own hands. What if one of the reasons we don't talk about it is also because it would open up a Pandora's box of shame and judgment that lives in the hearts and minds of the people who are in the trenches with somebody who's constantly thinking about killing themselves? It is not easy to live with somebody who has a severe mental health condition. And yet we're not allowed to say that. We are not allowed to feel exhausted, angry, sad, frustrated, or even depressed ourselves. People outside of this turbulent world are always quick to point out how shameful and selfish those feelings are for us to have. So the soldiers on the front line in this war to save another person's life keep these feelings to themselves. They keep their own battle hidden, and they can become anemic. It is proven, however, that maintaining connections with people who have thoughts of suicide can greatly reduce the number of deaths by suicide. So it is just as important that we also talk about supporting those who are out there, riding out the storm with somebody that they don't want to die, so that they are always fully resourced and able to maintain the life-saving connections with the people that they love. If you are one of us, someone dealing with supporting a person with a severe mental health condition on a regular basis, then this episode is for you. But I'm also warning you, be ready to hear a frank, honest, raw, and very brave conversation from a wife whose husband has suicidal thoughts and how she deals with this battle on her terms. If this episode triggers you, that's okay. Take your time or just stop listening. But you know me. There is no room in my world for false judgments or shaming other people. This is about supporting one another. We are all here to get better together. Thank you. Damn. I, uh, this is so freaking weird to, to be forcing myself to listen to something that's warning me not to. Um, man, I, I just already have so many like emotions swirling. Um, I don't know if I've ever been so afraid 
to, to watch a video. to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I am the host, Ami Quiricone. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is meant for adults and contains sometimes adult language. The topics I cover can be serious and unsettling to people. However, I do have a sense of humor laced with a little bit of a punk rock attitude. So if you're interested in real talks about real stuff by real people so that we can all get better together, well, then you're in the right place. And so Welcome. Okay, everybody, welcome back to One Broken Mom. Today I have a special guest, and I guess it's not really fair. All my guests are special. (laughs) Um, But today I have with me uh, Lori Grant. Now, Lori is actually a coach out in the eastern part of the United States, and she works um, with uh, energy healing. Um, and also providing life coaching services to, to other folks. And so she's like many people that I've had on the show where she is experienced in this realm of mental health and mental wellness. Now I have a, uh, Lori, sorry, I almost misspoke there. I have Lori on my show for a very particular reason. And you'll be listening to this episode in September during Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And that's because she's actually the spouse of a guest I've had on the show before, Andy Grant. And it I did an interview with him recently, and I don't know which order you guys will be listening to these two interviews. It all depends on where you jump onto the show and and which ones you pick up first. But I spoke with Andy because as a guest, um, we've talked about men's mental health and mental wellness and the work and the advocacy that he does in that field. But Andy had experienced a moment this past year in 2019 where um, he kind of just dropped off the radar for a bit. Uh, You know, I was used to being able to see posts that he was doing daily about, um, you know, his daily affirmations and his dialogue that he was sharing with his community of men and people that are concerned about men's mental health. And then it was like he wasn't there for a while. And when Andy reappeared back on the scene, and I believe it was July, early July of this year, he... um, came uh, kind of came clean with what had been going on and that is that he had found himself in a very severe state of depression again and was back into we'll call them the old ways of having these deeply dark and hostile suicidal thoughts and one of the first people I reached out to after I saw Andy's video was actually Lori his wife um, having experiences myself with having uh, family members and people that I've known that have battled this and it is a battle um, it's really deeply, oh my God. I mean, I take a deep breath. It's a scary place to be. And so I wanted Lori to come on today to talk about this because sometimes when we are in these situations with people that we care about, our, our inclination is to do whatever it takes to save this other person's life. And there's a huge amount of stress and fear. I think fear is one of the biggest feelings that I've personally experienced in this is, oh my God, am I doing enough? And oh my God, can I do something about this? And while you're working to save another person, you yourself are under this hyper aroused state of stress and it's a challenge. And, um, and so having Lori here today is to talk about what it's like because Lori's life has evolved with this and she has grown from it and she has a lot of really good insights to share with us. And I'm hoping that for any of you out there that are listening that have dealt with this or are presently dealing with this, that there's something that can be taken from our conversation today. So Lori, your time with me today. I'm extremely grateful. So welcome to One Broken Mom. 
Thanks. It's very good to be here. So um, tell me a little bit about how you and Andy met. So we met um, one of my friends, my childhood friends, actually, that I've known her for, you know, since I was like eight, um, was going out with one of his childhood friends. And she thought we would be a good fit. So she introduced us. And here we are. <laughs> and so how long ago, I mean, how long have you guys been in a relationship together now? So we've been, we'll be married 22 years this year and we were together two years before we got married. Okay. So you've got a lot of time together um, and a lot of, a lot of history there between the, the two of you. Yeah. Uh, now, did you know, cause I know we've talked with, you know, Andy and I've talked on the show. He shared his, you know, his personal experiences all the way back to his childhood and stuff like that. You know, is that something that he jumped out and kind of like laid on the table right away with you? Or was this, uh, this knowledge of his, uh, you know, his chronic depression? No, he shared it right away. <laughs> um, I should say, like, no, within like two weeks, I knew. Okay. That's still pretty early in a relationship though. Yeah. We sort of knew it was pretty serious, pretty fast. So, um, but he told me, yeah, within two weeks. I mean, I had an idea, but I did, I shouldn't say that. I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> My friend kept saying to me, he's so nice. He's so sensitive. He's really emotional. He's so sweet. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I hate that word. I hate that word sensitive. I still do. But that's because it was it was given to Lori as like a warning. And I was like, well, what the fuck does that mean? Um, and I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know the the woman that was telling this though I didn't know her well so she everything she was saying about me was like secondhand through my buddy who uh is not the greatest communicator among all my friends <laughs> so again I don't know what distorted version of my story turns into he's sensitive but but I am so what the fuck what do I know and I, I, those are all code words, by the way, just in case anyone ever says that to you, I, I think what I highly recommend run for the hills. <laughs> well, and so when you learned this about him, when he started to, you know, kind of like lay it out there and let you know what was going on, what was your like initial thoughts about that? Um, I was completely naive and I was like, oh, I can handle it. Like, I just was like, eh, no big deal. I'm like, yeah, we'll get through it. Mm -hmm. Like there was just not, first I had never been in a relationship, you know, I've never really been around people that were depressed and suicidal, like in my early life. And, 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 and that might've been by um, design, maybe not a conscious design, but certainly a design in my life. I like to be around happy people. So if somebody was down in the dumps, it wasn't something I was going to go focus on. Mm -hmm. So I think for most of my life, I, I wasn't around that and I didn't deal with it. So when he came into the picture, that, that shifted rather mm -hmm. quickly, actually. <laughs> well, and so, you know, having spoken with Andy several times, uh, you know, um, and I know this seems really weird for people that are sitting here that we're talking about him, like he knows, <laughs> um, yeah. but we're trying to talk about how we perceive other people. And so fortunately, we're going to throw Andy's name in here. But like, you know, right. when I speak with Andy, 
he's got an infectious smile. Uh, you know, it, depression doesn't, he doesn't look like the face of depression. Right. And, um, and so, you know, was he like that? And, uh, was there some sense of disbelief that, you know, maybe the depression's not that bad because here's this guy that smiles and, you know, is very open and communicative. I mean, and again, my, I have limited experiences versus your 22 years of experience with him. So he was not, when I first met him, he was not depressed at all. He was in a very good place. So, you know, it's like, you know, I have a weight issue, right? So I'll, I'll compare it to that. Like when I met him, I was thin. And I remember showing him a picture of me big, right? Like I am now and going, I have the potential for this. And it was almost like that disbelief, right? And it was the same thing for his depression. Like when he's in a good place, it's hard to imagine him not being in that place. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says that, when you're staring at and you're living with someone who's not like that, it's hard to wrap your head around what it might potentially look like when it's not that way. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, so this, and, and there's really no way to, to prepare for it. Like there isn't like, you know, like you can read all the books in the world, but when you're living it, it, you just throw the friggin' books away because all they're going to do is make you feel like crap. Mm-hmm. That would be my biggest recommendation. <laughs> like, like they're going to tell you, Oh, you have to do this. You have to do this. Well, you know what? When you're ever in it, you friggin' you, it's like being in a boat that's leaking water. What you're doing is you're friggin' bailing. You're not like going, Oh, how do I patch the hole? You're friggin' like you're bailing the water out. So you don't friggin' drown. Mm-hmm. And that is what you're doing during that time. Mm-hmm. I, so, I, that's like, I've, I've never used that analogy before. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> it's inspired. Um, how long into your relationship before you finally, uh, this, this darker side, this, uh, the depression parts of Andy began to reveal themselves to you and, 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 and became a part of your relationship? Less than, mm, less than eight months. Wow. Pretty quick. And was there a trigger or anything that you know of at that time? Oh, yeah. We moved in together. So it was like the six-month mark. We Maybe even less. We moved in together in like March. We met in October. We moved in in March. So he moved across the state. He switched jobs. And yeah, so that's a lot of upheaval. Mm-hmm. And he was doing contracting work, and it wasn't steady. And he was, he was definitely agitated about it. And it was just, yep, it went downhill very, very fast. And did you at this time, were you trained in any type of field of mental health or anything like this at this point? No. Okay. Not a <laughs> Okay. No, so, so here it is the first time, um, the depression that you're like, yeah, I can totally handle it is now full force in your face. You know, so what did you start to do at this point? Um, God, it was so long ago. Well, I, I did the, you know, the totally rational thing. I called up his mother and said, what the fuck did you do to him? <laughs> so, um, that went over really well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, like he had a lot of childhood stuff. And so I was, I am, I am a big believer and I'm, I'm not blaming parents or any of that crap, but 
I say that now outside of the situation, but when I'm in it, I really can't deal with this. I couldn't deal with his parents, either of them. And that's still pretty much true to this day. When he struggles, I don't, like his dad passed a little while ago. So I don't want to deal with his mother. I don't want to hear about her stress around it. Like, I just don't care. Like I'm focused on what I have to do. And so the last thing I want to do is, um, deal with trying to calm somebody else down about his behavior. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely, I, I'm like, no, um, cause she's always like, you can call me. And I'm like, no, no, I don't. Um, so, um, I forgot the question. Anyway, so. <laughs> so we're talking, it's okay. So I'll just uh, remind you. So we're talking about what you did that first time that so, when you found you. Yeah. So just a lot was, a lot was asking him a lot of questions, like, cause I didn't understand a lot of it. And a lot of it was what we, what we figured out was a lot of it was fear-based. And we had talked about his illnesses, you know, and what, you know, what, how his family had handled it over the years. Like we had, we had touched on stuff in the, those, that handful of months together. And I, like one of the big things that he shared with me was that when he would go into mental hospitals, that he kind of liked it and had fun there because all his issues dissipated because he didn't have to deal with anything. And so one of the things we agreed to was he would no longer go into a hospital because that was an out that like when life gets stressful, you, you don't run away from your problems. You learn to face them and it sucks. It sucks having problems and facing them. But that's what healthy people do. And unhealthy people run from them. And so he realized that a lot of his stuff was just like, yeah, he didn't want to deal with crap anymore. So he was going to duck out. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So, and I have some very different views around mental health. So I want to put that out there. Like, I'm not all like, oh, that's too bad. Everything. Like, I, I believe that we can heal from it. And I believe it takes a lot of work and effort to do that. And hiding out is never going to help somebody heal from it. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying when he went to the hospitals, instead of actually digging into like group therapy sessions and unpacking all the issues, he was just vacationing from problems and, you know, what, just letting the medications dull him out? And Yeah, but he never did med- meds because meds mm-hmm. never worked for him. Mm-hmm. So he was never a med person. All right, I just got to clarify that. So in hospitals, you're on meds, and I would go to group and did all those of things, but I felt better because there was nothing to worry about. Uh, you know, there wasn't a job to go to. There wasn't – it was just – I really uh, – from a young age, like I think like at, at 18 and 20, I was af- afraid uh, that I would become um, used to being institutionalized and only function in hospitals and actually – now I'm remembering that was that was something my dad would would say to me, like one of his warnings. Um, so thanks, thanks, Dad. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's when I realized. Well, this this whole I would be labeled clinically depressed, and I'd be in a mental hospital watching Seinfeld and The Simpsons and having a blast and going to group therapy and having fun. So it was like this this whole label and diagnosis just it, it just didn't make sense to me, and and being hospitalized um, kind of just proved that. But, but with that said, if I ever, like the last time I put myself, the only time I put myself in a hospital was when I was feeling suicidal, but I knew I'd gone through it enough to know that I wanted to live. 
but I, 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 I did not feel safe. So I put myself in a hospital to, to save my life, literally. So um, the only thing I would disagree with Lori so, so far about hospitals is that if, if you don't feel safe, you know, going, going to the ER, going and, you know, having yourself locked up for a weekend to keep yourself alive, you know, if, uh, if that's where you're at, then that's what you need to do. So, yeah, it was just a quick getaway. And I'm like, well, at that point, just freaking go on vacation, <laughs> right. you know? But, um, yeah, so that was like a big piece. And, and it caused a lot of conflict at the beginning with his family, with his parents. So he's an only child. So I only had to deal with his parents. And both of them were very much into hospitalization. And I was, I am not. I'm still not. I still overall think, you know, it's, it's, not the, it's not the first choice. It should never be the first choice. And sadly, today, it's the first choice. Mm-hmm. Right. So. And in some cases, it can be. And I'll put this out because I know that I'll, I'll get an email from somebody that, you know, whose life was changed by an inpatient right. therapy service. And so, um, and right. we've said this on the show before you know, these are us talking about these issues and raising awareness about our experiences to them. But, you know, to, to your point, I think that some people use it as the easy answer, thinking that all inpatient services are the definite, like that's where we go when it gets really difficult because addressing mental health issues is really hard. You know, the work is really hard. It's, it's painful. It's, you know, lonely. It's angry. It's sad. It's, you know, but you're absolutely right. That's work that you feel that you need to invest in yourself in order to be able to do it. And sometimes um, people think that it's super easy to do if you just bring in the professionals and you bring in the medications. And so I, I'm with you in that camp, but I also don't want to dismiss the fact right. that sometimes there is value, especially for somebody that's genuinely in danger of killing themselves right. like right away. That's a safe place for them to go. Right. So. And, and that's why I wanted to say that. Like, like it's, I, it's all dependent on who you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but I'm, you know, in other countries, you can't be on psych meds without seeing a therapist. In this country, you can be. Mm-hmm. That is a grave disservice to any person that's on psych medication. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think they have to go hand in hand. You have to be in therapy and you have to be digging into your crap. And it doesn't mean that your parents were mean to you or abused you, but stuff comes up in life and it triggers us. And if we can start to heal that stuff, I'm not saying that every drop of your depression will go away, but I'm going to tell you that you're going to start to have more insight into all your stuff. And with insight comes healing. Mm-hmm. So when you as a couple had to start kind of handling this as a team together, uh, you know, here's, here's the depression starting to come out. These big circumstances changed in your life and in Andy's life. It left him feeling very fearful of, you know, the future and what's going on around you. And those are all normal, you know, and understandably stressful, you know, conditions. But when somebody has a predilection due to those, that crap and that history in there that we know Andy does, it it can be worse, you know, magnified and amplified. And so you guys came up with this, started to form an agreement on how you'd work together as a team with handling that when these episodes, what was it that ultimately brought him out of that, that first episode and into back to, I would call him normal Andy, because normal Andy includes all of these things, right? We all, you know, our normal is all everything, all of it, good and bad. But what brought him back out to that, out of that state of threat and into, you know, kind of a a more even keel? Um, I don't know if he actually got 
I don't know if he got suicidal that time. It was so long ago. I don't remember anymore. I mean, he was really depressed and, oh, excuse me. He, he was, um, we got him, we, uh, he started to go to therapy and he was going like two or three times a week. And yeah, his therapist was like, you just made like the three biggest life changes you can make. You move, you have a new relationship and you have a new job, right? Those are the three big ones, right? So, um, he was, he was seeing a therapist and I was adamant about that. And that was a deal breaker for our relationship. And so some people say you shouldn't do that. Well, you know what I had to do, like, I knew he had told me that he believed he was assaulted as a child. He was molested. And that's way out of my realm of like what, what trauma that creates. So I was like, you, I can't deal with that. Like that's way beyond how I can help you. So that's beyond little, little stuff, you know? So I was like, you have to be in therapy. I'm not going to stay in the relationship if you're not going to do stuff to get better. Mm -hmm. So that was the deal from the get go. If you're working on yourself and you're doing stuff to get better, I'm here to support you. If you don't care enough to do that, I'm not in. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to care more than you do. So that was, that was sort of the, the crux. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and that's, that's how I sort of, that's how I handled it. Mm-hmm. Some people don't, I, but I knew like I would just be hateful and resentful if he didn't get help for himself. Cause then, you know, he, then he's putting that all on my lap and I'm not doing that. Right, right. And that's, you know, that is, that's your boundary. And that's a place of aligning and assigning like a, a healthy space for you to be able to, um, to live in and, you know, thrive in yourself. Because, you know, your boat analogy is correct. Um, drowning is a bit like this. And I've talked with other people that have, you know, lived with this specter of suicide in their life um, and, you know, have lost somebody to it. And, you know, a word that came up into my, my brain while thinking about this and also handling mental wellness issues with close family members is fatigue sets in you know, you get tired, you just get worn out. I mean, there are moments, you know, where you're just like, God, I just, I can't, I don't have the energy myself to have to deal with this. And when you have somebody who is, um, you know, who isn't trying to not drown or making it all your responsibility to keep them from drowning. And you're right. We're not all suited you know, up to have the tools to be able to do that. Or if we have all of our own business inside of us, we don't have all the fortitude, you know, emotionally sometimes. And it's really hard to make sure you're strong enough to be able to hold up to another person. Right. And, um, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll share my opinion. I'll agree. I think that I know for me, therapy is kind of a, is a boundary for me as well with people, <laughs> you know, just in general, it's kind of like I've invested a lot of time and energy into taking care of myself I, you know, I need to know that everybody else feels the same and as strongly about their own well-being to be in here because you don't want to be unintentionally led down into minefields, you know, with somebody. Right. Now, um, so he, he's gone through therapy and you guys are early into your relationship, but you've been putting up, or I would say putting up with this, but having to kind of have this balanced in your relationship for 15 years before you finally had an epiphany. And I think I saw someplace where you called yourself a people pleaser, you know, so talk about how being a people pleaser with a person who has suicide ideation and depression, 
you know, affected you in your life? So I was always a people pleaser, so I'm not going to put that on Andy. That, yeah, that, right. that, yeah. that, that's us. That's our stuff, right? That, that was, that was mine. Yeah. So, and, and one of the things I really want to say before I forget it is that you're going to find if you're with somebody who's suicidal and depressed and has that big energy and all that, chances are you're a people pleaser already mm-hmm. long before they came into your life because you attract that because that's what you attract. So you're going to pull those kind of people into your world. The people that need you yeah. so that you can do what you or you believe you're supposed to do, which is right. to take care of everybody else. Absolutely. 100%. Right. We talk about that all the time on One Broken Mom. Right. We bring in what we're used to doing right. and what we're suited up and ready to, to do. So. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's an awesome piece to that because you get to serve them. But you used at the beginning of the show, you, used, you kept using the term for save, save, save. So what I've learned over the years is throw that phrase out. That's never our job. The only person we save is ourselves, everyone else we serve. And if you can separate that, half of your issues are going to dissipate. So we don't save anybody. And our biggest flaw comes when we start to think we can, because that's when we start to lose who we are. And that's when my epiphany came, was like I was in my bathroom. He was going through, you know, I'm going to kill myself. I'm all done. And he was going, he drove off. He left. I tried to keep him in that. I tried to convince him not to go and he left. And I knew he was looking for a bridge or something to either drive into or drive off of. And um, at that point I was like, I actually said, just fucking go. Then just go. Like I was done. I was like, just go. If that's what you want to do, I'm not, I'm not stopping you anymore. Just go. And he left. And, you know, that, that, that might, not, might not be like the best thing to do in life, okay? But again, we're all where we are, right? Like we're human and um, you have to work through the guilt and the shame that comes with not being able to handle it. And um, I went into my bathroom and I remember putting my head in the towel and just screaming, how the fuck is this my life? Like it was the only time I think in my whole life I just wanted to, I wanted to run away. I wanted to get in my car and just never come back. And um, so I reached out to some of his friends and I was like, call, call him. He's off. He wants to die. I can't do it anymore. So I had never done that before. Um, and as you can tell, it's still not an easy thing to um, own that you just, you can't, you can't surf and save people. And that was when I realized it. And it was heartbreaking. It like, it shifted me forever because I always thought that was my, my role. And um, so it was like, I'm a horrible wife. I'm a horrible person. All that came up. So, um, I thought I had like healed because I reached out to people for the first time and asked them for help. And then like a year later, I was struggling terribly around it. And I realized I I was getting coached and I was getting some healings around stuff. And it turns out my big piece was that shame that I actually had to reach out to other people to get him help. 
So that was my epiphany. It wasn't that I told him to go and that wasn't I good that I reached out to his friends. It was, oh my God, my epiphany was the shame around not being, and I, I, did, we, I did this thing last week, but not being the Anjali wife. The, like, do you guys remember the, do you remember the ad? Oh, the yeah. Anjali commercial all those years ago? I can bring home the bacon, I can fry it up in a pan and never ever let you forget your, so basically like, that commercial, like Brene Brown did a piece on it saying that commercial, she said she doesn't know what it did for the sale of the perfume, but she's pretty sure that it enhanced the sale of antidepressants around the world for women. Because it was once again saying we have to do everything. And in that moment, I was like, I failed as a woman. And that was my shame. And so, I mean, I've worked through it, but there's still a huge piece that I'm still working on, right? Because we're always working on our deeper crap. Mm -hmm. So his, his stuff was a huge gift to me in a lot of ways because it made me create boundaries. And it made me learn how to do that because I really didn't know how. So that, that was our, you know, that was my biggest epiphany. But, you know, you tell people, you know, and, and we can get callous. I don't, we can get callous. For those of us who live with people with depression and suicidal stuff and you're dealing with it all the time, we can sound pretty friggin' cold when we're talking about it. And if you, if people don't know you, they are horrified if they overhear that conversation. Mm -hmm. So never judge somebody if you hear them talking about it, because there are days when I'm like, when I'll, I'll go out with my friends and go, yeah, I'm kind of ready for them to just do it. So I don't have to deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I want, but you get to a point where you're just like, I, I don't want to deal with that shit anymore. I'm sick of it. Mm -hmm. I'm sick of wondering if I'm going to come home to a dead body. Mm -hmm. So you, it's not that you want it, but, and you can sound brutal. So you have to be very cautious. I have, thank God, a very good group of people in my life that I can reach out to and go, oh, I'm ready to, like, I think, you know, joking, I'll do the, I'll kill him. I'll, I'll take the problem away completely and I'll just do it. So. Right. And Sorry. like I said, it, it leans into, again, that concept of like, it, it's, it's emotionally draining, yeah. you know, and it's, and it is wearing and, um, and yeah, and I, and I totally get it. I mean, and so I agree. Anybody that's on the outside was like, how dare you say something like that? I'm like, oh, I, we, we all have to sometimes take a deep breath, you know, and go, I agree. This is not what I want. I don't, you know, I, I don't want any of this. Um, but I don't have any fuel left in my tank to go another minute, you know, unless you find ways to take care of yourself. Right. So how do you, you know, refill your tank? Because that's usually when you're, when you're saying stuff like that out loud to your friends, it means you're, you're due to, you know, get the gas and fill that tank back up. Right. So how do you do that? Um, because this is draining. It is right. hugely draining. Right. And I don't think. I, and that's the other thing. I don't think people realize, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about people who struggle with mental health, but we, ne we rarely talk about the family members and just how much it wears you out and how, and it's almost like, yeah, but you're not going through that. So you don't know. 
Like you, it, it's, it's being shamed all over again for voicing a complaint about the difficulties of living with someone with it. Mm-hmm. Right. So people then turn around and shame you for voicing how difficult it is. And they're like, well, at least you're not suicidal. Right. Which is basically like saying, and this was, is a huge issue I have with my own stuff about my feelings not mattering as much as other people's. So of course I married someone who was suicidal because it fit right into my, like fitting into my, like, Oh, then my feelings don't really matter anyway. So like, it was a perfect match. It was a perfect match. Um, (laughs) So, but what it does is it says, shut up. You don't have a right to complain about it because you're, you're not, you don't want to die. So you negate, all the stuff that the the family person is going through. And um, I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've seen people who are depressed even say it. Well, it's not, you know, so you don't want to die. So how bad can it be? Mm-hmm. And um, you're just like, are you freaking kidding me? And what really, what are you going to resign? How do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Like, there's not really a good answer for that, right? Like, oh, thanks. Okay, I'm completely irrelevant. I get it now. <laughs> But um, <laughs> so um, what I do usually is I get together with my friends. Like I make a point of get, getting together. And that usually calms me and, and just being able to vent and know that they don't think less of me for that venting makes me feel better. Because mm-hmm. I like to serve. So I'm okay with helping mm-hmm. and serving. I just have to make sure that the person on the other end is okay with um, doing their share. Right. So this round with Andy was a little more difficult than usual um, because he didn't want to do anything to feel better. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when I lose it. So like, I don't mind people being, and I know that sounds weird. I don't mind people being depressed, but I can deal with people being depressed if they're taking action to shift. Mm -hmm. Right, doing nothing and they tell me they don't want to do anything I have it's much more difficult for me because it goes back to what I said at the beginning if you're not going to help yourself how I can't make anybody do something they're not want they don't want to do so if if you're not going to help yourself what why would I what why would I right And that's probably one of the, uh, you know, biggest challenges that, you know, I see and hear, I've experienced and felt, especially when we have been groomed through, you know, childhood to have to serve somebody else's needs instead of our own, when we weren't really parented in the way we were supposed to have been parented, but yet uh, made responsible or discovered we had some responsibility or we had power. You know, it was one of the things that for me was realizing or, you know, thinking, you know, that I had an ability to shift, and you know, other people around me, you know, um, when I really did didn't, but uh, it is to get over the, this idea that a boundary is unhealthy and a boundary is a bad thing, you know, that, um, or, you know, and I would say in partnership with that idea, like you've said, which is that we actually can save a person because how many times have we heard spouses or family members talk about how they did everything and despite everything they invested and everything they thought they were putting into this other person, this other person still made a choice to die by suicide, you know, and, uh, and then the grief that goes along 
with that they just didn't do enough. But ultimately, you that person still ultimately makes a choice. Is it a sad choice? Uh, you know, a hundred percent, it's a sad choice. Is it sad to think that they didn't have any other tools or resources or anything left in them to be able to do something different? Uh, uh, absolutely. But just like when we deal with all mental wellness issues and mental illness issues, like you said, you know, if my person or friend over here, I think would benefit from therapy because it would improve their life in X, Y, Z ways, but they refuse to go. I can't keep harping on them to change their mind or convince them to do otherwise. You can't force epiphanies onto everybody else. They, right. they just happen. Our brain, you know, brings them to our own awareness. And, you know, it, it's kind of, it, it, it is kind of depressing in itself, you know, that we want to be able to do that for somebody and find ourselves unable. Ultimately, it's not, it's not in our power to do anything. Um, When Andy's, you know, kind of like disappearing act here earlier this year started to happen, did you see it coming? Did you know it was happening? Or did it suddenly, did it creep slowly or did it happen all at once Uh, for you? This, this, this one manifested pretty fast this time around. Um, Usually you can, I can see it and we can, we can get it halted pretty quick. Um, you know, you know, we have uh, this red flags. And so I'm, I'm pretty in tune with them over the years. Um, this one, we came back from vacation and almost, almost in, I would say within a week after we got back from vacation, it was, he was in full groove. So I'm not sure what really happened this time around. But it, it was fast and furious. So and and that was like a little startling because it was very different from how it's been over the years. And it was, you know, we talked about it right away and what are we gonna do? And he was, you know, he was like, I don't want to do real men feel. I'm like, I think I should keep doing it. And then he was like, I'm gonna stop for a month, and then it was two months, and I think two I don't I don't know exactly how long because everything sort of gets um just goes into a different mode for me. So he pretty much from like by the end of February, right through till the beginning of July, he was pretty awful. So okay. it was, but, but there wasn't, which was a little scary for me. There wasn't any signs this time around. It just mm-hmm. sort of boom. It just sort of happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most frightening things is how many times we hear the stories, see the tales, you know, see it happen to other people around us where one minute they're fine and then they're not, right? right. And, and then they're gone, you right. know? And again, that the, the fear of living underneath that possibility, you know, how do you live with that fear? Because, you know, I had Andy on the show. I asked him directly, you think you're, you think you're fine now? You think this will ever happen again? Nope. Don't think this will ever happen again. And, but I sit there as being a person on the outside, like maybe in your shoes going, how can I ever trust that that will ever be the case? Like, how do I live my life believing that that's the case and feel good about that? Right? How do I let my guard down and let myself be open to the fact that for the next 40 years, it's all going to be rosy and this will never happen again, especially when you're building upon 20 years, right, of experience of seeing sometimes it comes out of the blue, you know? So how do you feel? How do you, how do you handle that? So it's funny. Years ago, we, <laughs> we, did, we did a, um, he had took it, taken a year-long energy class 
and he felt really good. And I was like, well, I'm going to sign up and I'm going to take it. And he said, that sounds great. And I said, but it's going to bring up a lot of crap for me. So you know how this year when everything came up for you, I'm like, you're going to have to be there for me when all of it comes up for me. So I need to make sure you're going to be okay through all this because my stuff's really going to come up. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to be great. And I was like, okay. And I signed up and then um, some stuff happened with his teacher, with him, with me. And I said, I'm not going to take the class. I'm going to back out. Um, because his teacher was like me. She, he was a team player. He was very, you know, wishy-washy with boundaries. And I really wanted to see him in a strong role. So he was sort of my role model of how I could learn how to have my boundaries better. But then that person's wife was very strong and sort of ruled him. And then it turned out she was going to be teaching the class a lot. And I was like, I'm not going to take it because I'm going to lose what I need because she's going to overpower him and I'm, I'm not going to learn what I need to learn. And um, in the process, they had a big, there was a big falling out with the class and the teacher and, the, and he, Andy cycled down. And I was like, see, I can never do anything I want to do. So, <laughs> right, in my head. Mm -hmm. So that was when I thought, that was the first time I thought he wouldn't have it anymore. And I was like so resentful for the first time. And so then I shifted and I was like, so now how I deal with it is I'm going to live like it's never going to happen again, but I'm okay if it does. Because if I live with waiting for it to happen, I'm never really going to live, right? Mm -hmm. It's that whole mentality of waiting for the shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I have that tendency in me already. So I really work hard at not doing it, but not with like the total oblivion of it will never, ever happen again. But mm -hmm. it's just like, I'm going to enjoy life as much as I can, as, as, as while I can, while, while everything is good and I'm going to live like it's not going to happen again. But if it does, I'm okay with that too. Mm -hmm. Instead of being mad if it happens again. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how I do it because I don't, you know, it's like driving. Well, car accidents happen. Do you drive every day thinking what, what if it happens? Right. No, you drive like it's not going to happen. And so that's sort of how I, that's how I live. It's, it's a challenge. Right? Like if I feel like I'm getting into the my story crap, my story, I'm married to a guy who has depression and suicide, right? And, and it, that, that can be our story. Mm -hmm. And I can, you can get wrapped up in that. And, and so I might not get depressed and suicidal, but I can certainly use that as an out to not want to deal with things. So I try really hard. Again, it's a lot of work. You know, whether you have mental illness or not, doing your own crap and clearing your own stuff, it's a lot of freaking work. And living with someone with mental illness, if you're not doing that work, you're screwed. You're mm -hmm. screwed. I, and this is what I want to say. If it's too much, go. Leave. 
don't stay. You're not doing yourself or them any favors. Like you're not the worst person in the world if you say this is way too much for me and I don't want to do it. Because mm-hmm. I, and I, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people feel again a stigma or a shame of not you know, not finding, you know, not being honest with themselves to say, I just, I don't have the tools for this. You know, I I can't do this. I, you know, and then there's this whole, I don't want to do this. Right. And there's nothing (laughs) wrong with saying that. But people, if if somebody says that out loud, you know, how many other people are going to go, wow, what a piece of shit human being you must be to not want to, you know, of course course we don't want people dying. Right. Right. But (laughs) you leaving isn't going to make them die. That is some, some kick-ass, kick-ass guilt that other people will throw at you because they don't have the balls to stay and deal with it either. You know, it's always someone on the outside looking in going, what? How could you leave? Like, it's like, well, where the hell are you? Are you living it 24-7? Then shut the F up. Because, like, there is, the last thing I need is somebody who's not living it to tell, tell someone who's in it that they need to stay in it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's some balls. Like, you come do it. And then you, when after months and years, you tell someone that they don't have a right to say, I'm all done. Like, I'm, like, that, like, I get infuriated. Because, like, even when I was working and I was running groups at an outpatient program for mental health, and I would tell them, they'd be like, people don't stay. And I'm like, are you doing anything to make them? And they'd be like, what? I'm like, what are you doing to help yourself heal that would make them want to stick around? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, do you wait till you're suicidal to get help? Are you going for help all the rest of the time when you're in a pretty good place? Well, no. And I'm like, well, why should they stick around? I'm like, do you think it's easy? And they're like, no. I'm like... Well, why, why do you assume that somebody would do that? Like, so it was always this challenge with them. Like, um, you're a lot of work. I think you're worth it. But if you don't think you're worth it, how much do you think I should do? And one of my, one of the, um, what do you call them? Uh, social workers. One of the social workers, her first thing to me when I was getting frustrated with the, with the patients was, um, you can't want it more than they do. Mm-hmm. And that was a new epiphany for me. And I was like, oh, well, that is everything. I mean, you can put that with addicts, right? Like if you're <laughs> friends with an alcoholic and you want them to quit drinking, but they don't want to, you can't want it more than them. You can't do stuff to make them stop drinking. So if you equate mental illness like you do with alcoholism, you will, and read, I highly recommend, and I can't remember it, Melody Beattie's book. Oh, yeah. Well, she Uh, wrote about codependency. She was the one that, she's the one that actually, yeah, codependent no more. No more. Yeah. Replace alcoholism with mental illness and you will have that book perfect for people who take care of people and live with people with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's the challenge. Stop trying to save them all the time. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And, you know, your analogy to driving a car, that's absolutely true. It, you know, it, you, you do have to, there are no guarantees. I've said that many times too. Like we aren't immortal. Right. <laughs> you know, death is coming for all of us at some right. point in time. And you're right. We don't wake up every day under normal circumstances, you know, uh, fearing, you know, what's next and not doing, you know, some people choose not to do certain activities because they're dangerous activities, whatever it is. But yeah, the, the key is to wake up every day, one day at a time and roll with the day that you have and, and do the best that you can with that day and with the people that you have around you and stuff. Um, so, you know, when somebody's in your life that, um, has that tendency, you know, every day that you get, you know, is important. Um, you know, so now you do coaching, uh, services and the energy healing work and stuff like that. Do you work with a lot of other spouses that are in similar situations? No, no. And I'll tell you why, because that's who I wanted to work with. Mm -hmm. Like my goal was to work with family members. Mm -hmm. So what I learned when I, after failing miserably at, at having clients was that people like me don't reach out for coaches. Right. That's the irony, right? Because <laughs> we know how to do it all ourselves. Because <laughs> we're not worthy of taking the time or the money uh, that to one. heal ourselves. Our job is to take care of other people. Hmm. So the people that I want to help the most are the people that rarely come for help. Mm -hmm. So it's it's been an interesting challenge. So I've worked with a lot of people with mental health stuff. Um, and it's more of a challenge. I mean, it's, it's very, very rewarding. But I would like to work with the people who, um, the people pleasers, but the people pleasers of the world won't pay or reach out for help. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have to be at a point, sadly, they have to be sort of like at their wits end before mm -hmm. they reach out. And then it's, very, it's usually temporary. Mm -hmm. So I'll get somebody for like two or three months. And then they're like, okay, I'm good, thanks. Mm -hmm. And they're back to the thing. So it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's funny, but it's not. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it just is what it is. The people that I want to help the most are the, like, the least likely to come forward. Right. And you can't want them more than they do, right? Right. right. So right. it's like, because somebody, like I, I hired a business coach and she was like, that's not, she's like, you have to figure out how to get to them. And I'm like, and I like, not just like, cause she's not like that. And I was like, you have no idea. Like, I'm not going to get to them. Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, you can. I'm like, no. Oh, they'll tell me that mm -hmm. I'm exactly what they need, but they'll never actually hire me. Mm -hmm. I said, but they'll tell me a million times that I'm the person they need but they won't actually hire me. Yep. And, and she was like, I don't understand how you can be so kind. I'm like, I'm like, it just is. I said, when I do finally get, when I get people, it's amazing. And the shifts are amazing, but they're few and far between because they literally have to be at their wits end before they'll do anything. Right. Yeah. Because there's something about the financial investment, which I've covered on our show before about financial disorders, you know, and, you know, even though money may not be at the root of the script that's running in the background that says whether or not you're worth it, but parting ways with dollars, especially a few hundred dollars to get extra help seems frivolous. It seems like you're not worth any of that. I mean, I hundred percent, and it's not just a mental wellness, but it's in business coaching as well. You know, that people 
people want it, but then they just suddenly shrink away at it and don't feel like, gosh, I'm not sure that it's worth that. You know, I'm worth that money to spend. It seems so expensive, you know, and yet we already know that people spend equivalent amounts of money on different ways of filling, you know, that emotional, you know, gas tank and stuff. Um, Well, it's a challenge, I'm sure. You know, the other thing when you were talking about the wanting it more to the analogy that popped in my head was, and this is one of the choices that I made many years ago, even before I started going down through therapy, which is, you know, I just got tired of having people in my life that constantly stuck their hand in the meat grinder and then wanted me to fix it for them you know, and you pull their hand out and then they just jam it back in there again. And you just have to say, no, if you, if you keep, if you keep doing this, um, you know, and hurting yourself, even if it's at a subconscious level, but you're not, you know, able or in at a space to be able to be aware of that, that doesn't mean I have an obligation to continue to pull your hand out for you and try to, you know, or give you my right arm to replace the one that you are, you know, chewing up on your own. Right. And again, that, that, that's hard for people to say that to somebody, especially if they're a family member. Right. Right. And then you have to, like, you have to start to question their whys. Mm -hmm. Like, why are they doing that? Like, what are they getting from it? So we, one of the first things I learned is every action we have creates a benefit for us whether we realize it or not, right? So if it's a negative action and we're getting negative feedback and or we put the hand in the grinder and then we get attention because now we have to go to the hospital and somebody has to help us and da 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 da, da and we get this benefit. So when the bene- when when our actions stop giving us some form of a benefit, we stop doing that action. So we have to figure out what what benefit, right? And that's a really, really hard thing. And this is, this goes for regular, you know, people without mental illness stuff and people with it. When you're depressed, when all that stuff's happening, what benefit are you getting by staying in the bed? What benefit are you getting by not taking your shower? What are the benefits? Because when those start to dissipate, you start to do stuff again. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, st- you have to dig in. And that's like one of the easy, I don't want to say it's easy, but easier ways to like, look at something like what this action is happening. What benefit do I get from it? So for the people who are manipulating and, and I know people don't like that. And part of people pleasing is manipulation. So I don't want to say that I'm not doing that when I'm going out of my way to do something I don't want to do because I, I feel like I have to, I want you to like me. That's a form of manipulation. Yep. So I like it's that's an uncomfortable place to be because people pleasing sounds so much nicer than I'm manipulating you into liking me. Um, but it's the same basic thing. So what's the benefit? So when I people please, what's the benefit of that? Well, the benefit is people think I'm nice. People, people, I, I get to help people. People feel good. I feel good. They'll maybe do something for me if I need it. Like all those things come, right? So that's just a little piece, right? Because people pleasing is very insidious. It goes into levels that I'm not, we're not talking about that today, but it goes into levels that we don't even understand. But like, we don't know what, that our behavior is actually creating that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but if you ask yourself, what's the benefit? And you start to look at the people in your life that are struggling with mental health stuff 
and you're seeing that behavior over and over again, start to look for what their benefit is from it. Mm -hmm. So like people that struggle with anxiety, what's the benefit when they cancel all their arrangements? Like somewhere there's a benefit. I know that sounds harsh because they're like, no, there's no benefits. But I've worked with enough people over the years to have them tell me that they've used their anxiety to get out of stuff they don't want to do. So that's a benefit. I got to tell you, if you ask Andy, Andy about funerals, he will tell you that he did not have to go to funerals in our relationship for years and years and years because he would use that as an out. He would say it was, he was afraid it would spiral him into depression. So I would never make him go. Turns out that was not true. He just didn't like to go to funerals. And I was like, well, who the fuck does? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, but sometimes you just have to go. So that's what, you know, that's what I mean about benefits. Like there are things that they will use to get what they want. And it's our job as their partners, as their parents, as their family members, as their friends to not enable them. Mm -hmm. And that, that is a hard thing to do. This is a fine line between taking care of them and loving them and not enabling. Mm -hmm. We, uh, you know, this is a challenging situation to be in, uh, you know, no doubt, you know, from this point forward, from everything that you've already been through, um, what is the, the thing? And I know there's no magic bullet to any of this, but if we're leaving listeners with uh, that are in the same situation as you, with what's the first step they should start to do in order to improve their well-being if they happen to be in a similar circumstance? Where do they begin, in your opinion? Their happiness is not your job. Just kind of like print that on a piece of paper, tack it up on the wall, and, yeah. and look at it every day. Remind yourself every single day, your happiness is your job. Their happiness is theirs. I'm not saying you don't support them. Listen, I've been with somebody for 24 years almost 24 years. Very, very supportive. Love him. Don't, can't imagine my life without him. Not, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I support him through it all. I don't save him through it all. I don't think anymore. Well, sometimes I, I don't think I'm failing if he's not happy. Now, for women, that's a whole new challenge. Mm -hmm. Like, forget about the mental health thing. That's a challenge just in day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. When you throw in the mental health piece, you, you add in just another complexity of how we were raised and how we were told that it was our job as wives, that our husbands, what are we supposed to do to keep them happy? Mm -hmm. Right? Like it, like, it was all on us, and they had no responsibility for it. So... And for, 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 for husbands, you have the same thing. It's a little different because you don't have the whole life of that's your role mm -hmm. is to keep your, your partner happy. I mean, it is on some levels, but it's different. It's not right. the emotional thing. And I, I, I'm, I'm saying that as a generalization. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for I'm sure. I'm saying that as a... But um, so the biggest challenge is reminding yourself every single day that it's their job to keep themselves happy. And it's your job. And I'll say this, it's your job to support them in that. Mm -hmm. It's not your job to, to create it for them. Mm -hmm. and, and you can get very sick of throwing out different ideas to make them want to do things because they are the, 
listen, people are great yeah butters. Right? Mm-hmm. Honey, why don't we try this? Why, why don't you try this? Yeah, but I can't. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but. And so, you know, and you can have a sense of humor about it. Oh my God. If you cannot laugh about it, and, and that goes, it flies in the face of everything. But friggin' laugh about suicide. Laugh about depression. Laugh about anxiety. Laugh about it. Don't make it taboo. If it's always so serious, there's n- you can't find the humor in it all. And sometimes it's friggin' funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it just is. Like, really? Like, really? You're going to try and find a tree branch out in the yard to try and hang yourself from? Really? That's, that's how you want me to come home and find you? Hanging some, you know? Like, find the humor. Like, really, honey? That's, that, what will the dog be doing? Well, the dog be running around flipping out. Like, try and find the humor, even in, it's, it's dark humor, but it's humor. And if you can laugh, laughter heals a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So you try and find the humor in it, you yeah. know? I get you. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen other, you know, I, I work through other platforms related to mental health and also physical health. And, and in those advocacy platforms, you know, they actually do talk about, you know, an integration of, of humor into it um, because, you know what, honestly, you know, that, that feeling that you get through your body and your chest when it's the positive chemicals that come from that experience is our healing in themselves. And like you're saying like, there's a time and a place to be funny about it and to not be teasing somebody. Teasing is not humor. That's different. You know, that is totally right. different. Right. Um, and so we're not advocating teasing anybody for that, like at all. And if you can't understand the difference, I don't think you're listening to the show. Um, right. But, uh, you know, I agree that there, you have to be able to break that. And, you know, and, and thank you for talking and bringing that up on this because you're right. You know, the reason why I want to talk about suicide and preventing suicide as much is because it is a taboo topic. People don't talk about it enough. They don't share honest, you know, honest and raw feelings like you did out of fear of having somebody call them, you know, despicable or terrible or whatever, or the, um, the idea that again, talking about it causes more people to, you know, to run off and kill themselves or, or just the, this is so big and it's so heavy. I don't even know how to open up that first page and begin. Right. So I, I don't say anything about it because I'm afraid of what the pages in this book are going to tell me, you know, right. about what's going to happen and, and everything. And so right. I do appreciate you uh, spending an hour with me you know, today to actually talk about this and, um, and to bring awareness to it and to your position, you know, with it, with having somebody very close to you, um, do it. So thank you so much, Lori. Oh, it's my pleasure. And remember, never call your mother-in-law and say, what the fuck did you do to him? (laughs) I'm I'm not recommending that. (laughs) See you guys, that's humor. That's how that works. Fair enough. And I and I and I had only known her for six months. It was like maybe not the best way to like start off a relationship. So just for the record, we're very good friends now. We're very close. And I still don't talk to her about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've had other guests on the show before too that once you start putting labels on everybody, it all goes downhill really quickly. So Yeah, you gotta you gotta but you gotta you do have to look I mean you lose, you lose, if, if you're taking care, and it's the same if you're taking care of somebody who's sick. Like I took care, I spent a year and a half, big surprise, right? I'm a people pleaser and a caregiver. I took care of my father-in-law as he passed. So I took care of him for like a year and a half. And I would get together with my friends and we would laugh about the things he did, right? So he had dementia mm-hmm. and cancer. And 
it doesn't mean I didn't care about him, but you have to let that stuff out. And in doing it in a humorous, loving way with friends and not like ripping into him, that's, that's healing for, for, for me anyway. Mm -hmm. So some people are like, Oh, are you taking a hot bath? I'm like, well, a hot bath is not, is not freaking serving me on any level. I don't like baths that much. So me taking a salt bath isn't like, that's not self-care for me. That's like more like self-torture. Mm -hmm. So I'm not doing that. But going out with my friends and, and eating, getting some nachos and being able to go, what the fuck is going on in my life? Oh my God. Mm -hmm. That is self-care for me. So mm -hmm. you find what works for you. Don't listen to all the books about self-care being go for a long but, you know, take a bath, get some quiet time. That's not what rejuvenates me at all. Mm -hmm. So find out what rejuvenates you and do that. Don't listen to all the people tell you what you should do for mm -hmm. rejuvenation. Right. And not let them shame you into not honoring who you are and what right. you need and stuff. Absolutely. Because right. that's a big challenge today because everything is self-care today. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. Sometimes I'm just like, throw that shit out. <laughs> cool well, i think that's a good uh point to end on the interview today so thank you for throwing that out there because i think that's probably one of the most important things is to figure out what it is that you're going to need to you know re refill and you know that's what it is when you're used to running on a low tank or fumes for most of your life because you've been giving fuel to everybody else around you learning how to get that tank full again and again so that you're resourced for yourself but also, and once you're resourced for yourself, then there's the capacity to be able to, like you said, serve, not save the people that you, uh, that you have around you that you love. So again, thank you so much for this. So again, Lori, it was a pleasure. Like I said, I appreciate meeting you. Um, I'm not going to lie. It'd be nicer to meet you under different circumstances. But again, I value your transparency and your honesty and your candor and your bravery for being able to talk with me about this today. So thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. But, uh, um, wow. So, uh, I'm just kind of tongue-tied still. That was hard. Um, it, and it varied in degrees of, of difficultiness to just stay here. Um, if I was just watching this alone, I would have, I would not have watched it all. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, we're all kind of the centers of our universe. And, and one theory is that that's, that's truer than a saying. And everybody else is a reflection back of us. So it's really bizarre to hear someone else's viewpoint of, of things I've done, of, of experiences and interactions. Um, I do remember when me and Lori first moved in together, I called my old therapist from where I was living. And it was the first guy that I really liked and liked going and it was helpful and beneficial. And he was like, you moved, you quit your job. You moved in with this new woman. You're like, what, what the fuck? Of course you're going to be a mess. They like, you really didn't think this would have an effect on you. And uh, you know, again, cause I was, I was being brought up with, with the labels and diagnoses and it's chemical things. So like, you know, it's, it's depression happens to me because of some chemical imbalance not because of circumstances, you know, how can, how can it be, you know, how can it just happen because of, of 
you know, my biology. Um, and then also circumstances can trigger it. It, it just, yeah. I, uh, anyway, whatever I'm saying, but I remember really throwing it out on the table, giving her the chance to say, yeah, this is a bad idea. I don't want to live with you. Goodbye. And, uh, that's, I don't remember talking like two weeks into our relationship, but I do remember when it was bad. Um, yeah. What else? And I do remember her calling my mom and that pissed me. Like that was the closest we were going to come to end. It, we weren't going to end because of uh, depression or you know, seeing a therapist or, or any of that crap. It was that uh, I felt, you know, she went behind my back and talked to my mom, which is just abhorrent. <laughs> Um, and I don't, I'm not even sure why, but like, I wouldn't, it never crossed my mind to talk to anyone's parents about them. I don't know. So maybe that's, maybe that's a male, female thing. I don't know. Or if sort of a snitch thing. I don't know. But yeah, our biggest, biggest fights ever have been early in the relationship when, uh, when Laurie would reach out to my, uh, to my folks. But other than that, it was really, you know, it's hard to sit here and watch, you know, watch somebody you love cry. Um, and talk about the time uh, when she was just fed up and said, "Just go," and I was going. So yeah, if 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 I had died that day, it wasn't it wasn't because she said go. Like um, there was no stopping me. That was a time that I had to prove to myself that I didn't want to die, and the only way to prove that was to try to die. And uh, you know, you, you're just not going to get that unless you've been there. Um, so, hmm. <sighs> well, I hope uh, if you made it this far, you got some benefit from that. I hope my comments and uh, reactions added to it. If uh, just distracted, you know, you can watch the whole interview with Lori um, without me sitting in the corner. <laughs> but uh, until next time, be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel.